and welcome to the Trash Tapes podcast as part of the Enigmatic Productions Network. If you love bad cinema and incredible deep dives into cult film, then you have come to the right place. So if you like what you hear and want to support us, you can do so by donating some funds to our Buy Me A Coffee website, along with the ACAR supporter feature. All of these can be found in the description below. And now, on with the show. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Movie buffs and cinephiles, and welcome to another episode of the Not So Trash Reviews. My name is Johan Chapal, your host, amateur sleuth, and someone who's been listening to way too many true crime podcasts lately. On this episode, I'm joined by actor and YouTuber Chris Chambers as we review a film which, at first, I thought was a little too mainstream for the podcast, since we usually go for cult cinema and misunderstood gems. But it is the latter that I decide to jump on. Looking at David Fincher as a director, there are many films that get the praise and admiration they rightly deserve, but our film rarely gets discussed as much in comparison to the rest of his filmography. Even Alien Free and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button have had some discourse about them due to their novelty and production history. So with that being the curio, I accepted his request and re-watched it after many years. I found it almost as a rediscovery planting seeds of what could be the director's visual language and some of the best performances of what would now be considered the biggest actors in Hollywood. So while this film may be talked about in some circles, when was the last time you watched it? Does it still hold up? We're about to uncover this mystery and find the clues as to why this film may in fact be Finch's best. So. Join Chris and I as we examine the development of performance and style, the 2007 mystery thriller biopic, Zodiac. Dear Editor, this is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? The Zodiac Killer has come to San Francisco. Another letter. School children make nice targets. He gave himself a name. 
Greek, Morse code, astrological signs. This guy's used them all. I like killing people because man is the most dangerous animal of all. How does one do that? I like puzzles. I do them a lot. Got any hard suspects? About uh, 90 an hour. I'm up to around 500. You got four crime scenes. Not a single usable print. You can't think of this case in normal police terms. He's breaking the pattern. Lana said you were a cartoonist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing at the gun range? I just want to help. What are you, some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually. First class. Well, I've been thinking. Oh, God, Sam, what's the move? There's no evidence, Robert. What do you mean there's no evidence? You have him seen with the ciphers, the military blueprints, the bloody knife. All circumstantial. Why do you need to do this? Because nobody else will. Dave, you made a mistake! Get away from the window. Paul, are you okay? No. Why'd you do it? You put your face out there for him to see. Hello? Who is this? Zodiac was my job. It's not yours. He's still out there, Dave. Killing is his compulsion. It drives him. It's in his blood. Jeez. What? Squirrels. This is the Zodiac speaking. I have a gun. I can give you a lift to the service station. Do you always go around helping people in the night? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. And I am joined here by Chris. Hi there. Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well, mate. Superb, superb. Um, it's it actually been wanting to have you. I haven't spoken to you in a while, to be frank. Uh, so it's it's quite nice to get you on here. And I wanted to get you on the show for predominantly because I need. I I wanted to actually what talk about some movies from an actor's perspective in particular, because most of the people I know are filmmakers, right? I don't know a lot of actors, and I find. Yes. Wanting to analyze a cult film or a movie that needs a little bit more love and attention from an actor's perspective could be quite an interesting approach. Well, I mean, it's always good to get a different viewpoint. Indeed. And that's the main goal I wanted to go for that today. Now, you now you suggested this film. And on first glance, I kind of thought you might have gone, you might have missed the mark a bit. Because I okay. thought, this is originally thinking, because you said like, okay, we're going to be doing, I want to do a David Fincher film. I go like, David Finch is quite a well-known director, so mm. why are we going this route? Until you mentioned the movie Zodiac. And I thought, well, I thought everyone knows Zodiac. I thought everyone knows Zodiac's a great movie. Until I sat there and I found few things that kind of tickled me a bit. Number one, I forgot pretty much that anything that happened in Zodiac at all. I've completely forgot about it. But secondly, how difficult it is to find. It's not on any streaming service unless you pay for it. The DVDs are kind of not around. You can't really buy them about. And it just kind of feels like it's not something that a lot of people, it's not a movie in his like in his like collection that yes. people talk about. So that's why I love it. Yeah. It's this sort of his underdog film. You know, mm. when you say when you say David Fincher, people think of seven, they think of Fight Club, but you know, this film, maybe some people don't know about it or or I would possibly argue that they just don't like it because it's different to what he's done before of that genre. Mm. You know what I actually find more interesting, actually? This is the thing I approach because I literally, this is very fresh for me. I've literally just rewatched it hours before seeing you. And the more I kept watching it, the more I didn't think, like, I don't think people didn't like it. I think people missed a mark when it came out mm. because... 
if this is, I will quintessentially say, is the most David Fincher film in the history of David Fincher films. It, in terms of his style, his aesthetic, his form yes. of direction, the way he shoots, the way he edits, this is everything that a David Fincher fills under. Movies before then, so if you look at things like Panic Room, uh, Fight Club, Seven. They're all testing the waters. It hasn't been fully finalized yet. But then everything after Zodiac all feel like they've like like David Finch has finally mastered his craft of what, how he approaches a movie. And if you look at thing, if you look at uh, a, the best example I can think of right now is looking at Mindhunter, the TV series. It's exactly like Zodiac in its approach. Yes, you took, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was just about to say that. I mean, it's got a very, it's very much of that ilk, that television show. In terms of the pace for me, mm. the pace is a lot slower. It's a lot more character driven. Mm. So yeah, it's a really good point. I never thought about it like that. Yes, he is almost testing, testing the waters really with those earlier films. And yeah, and then from this point onwards, other films are falling the similar ilk. Like if you look at his remake of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, if you look at, if you look at a little bit on Social Network, it's, he's, fi- he's finally found a thing he feels comfortable with as an auteur. And I was, I was thinking like, I have seen this before. I've seen his, this structure before. And it turns out this is what he's been, he's, he's mastered it. And so now yes. every movie, even though he's, he's created what's been now established as the David Fincher style of filmmaking. And Zodiac was his first full-blown proper attempt at this is the kind of movie I want to make from now on. Welcome to the Enigmatic Insert, where I take you aside and help analyze any key terms or theories we may stumble upon in our review. During our discussion, Chris and I began to examine the term auteurism, and if theory can indeed apply to various roles on the film set and not just a director. However, we are going to start with our filmmaker. Is David Fincher an auteur? Auteur literally translates from French to the word author, establishing that within context of cinema, the director, having, exerts a, having exerted a high level of creative control across many aspects of the film, can imprint a distinct style, theming, and message that is predominantly theirs. The term was first used in a 1954 essay, A Certain Trend in French Cinema, written by director and film critic Francois Toufont, who would later be considered the grandfather of French New Wave. He stated that filmmakers who make an effort to impose a unique and personal vision onto their work will stand out from the mere stager directors of the ever-churning mainstream studio films. Like painters and authors, they would have created something that would be considered their own and influence others after them. So how can we define what makes an auteur filmmaker? Andrew Saris, film critic for the New York Times, expanded on the definition with three components. Auteurs need to show a sense of technical competence in their filmmaking skills. They have a distinguishable personality presented onto the screen that cannot be mistaken for any other filmmakers. And auteurs make films that can have layers of meaning with themes and messages that only they have a distinct interest in. Does Fincher fall into this? Through that definition, it is a resounding yes. His films do have a very exact technique, have very particular color palettes, tropes and stories that can almost be mimicked to be used for a term Fincher-esque. 
Look at the most recent Matt Reeves film, The Batman, has actually been compared and described as such. But this is not something that Fincher had from the beginning of his career or created entirely on his own. It was developed and influenced with every production and with every person he ended up regularly working with. The flaw with auteur theory is the lack of consideration for others in the production and the collaborative effort filmmaking is. Fincher has worked with a series of regulars such as composer Trent Reznor, cinematographer Jess Cronenworth, editor Angus Wall, and of course, his wife and regular producer, Cianne Chaffin. This is clearly an ongoing team effort that helped make creative style a reality. Chris Chambers begins to examine how Zodiac might be a turning point for Fincher, comparing it to his other previous works like Seven. I'll let him explain. I mean, I find it interesting that he, he makes this film after something like Seven, for instance, mm. which you could say is the quintessential you know, serial killer horror film yeah. you know, of that ilk, that genre. Um, and I can imagine, I mean, maybe me saying, oh, they just didn't like Zodiac. Maybe that's a bit strong, but I can imagine someone going from Seven to Zodiac and expecting the same thing and just mm. being completely shocked or turned off. Because it's, I mean, I don't know how much of a deep dive you want to go into the film right now and the plot, but it's a film without, without much of a resolution, mm. which I find really interesting. Again, we're talking about some, some of, you know, an actor's point of view, yeah. that you have these characters with an arc, but no real resolution. Because uh, obviously we're dealing with, you know, the real life story of the Zodiac where they never actually caught the killer. Yeah. So it's more an examination, less about the Zodiac killer, but about the people involved, everyone mm. from the police to um, investigative journalists, to the people on the street of San Francisco, you know, how do they, how do they get some resolution when this person's never been caught? Yeah. And that's what I find fascinating, especially just as a storytelling device. Mm. And that's why I see it as a, as a kind of a, a night and day thing between seven and Zodiac. What I find interesting is like, if you look at his previous films before Zodiac, like Panic Room examples, another one, He's he's experiment and uh, he's experimenting a lot more creatively with things like camera, like moving camera things, going through walls. He's using a lot of CGI to be more creative in that sense, which and- turns me off. I've got to say, mm. still to this day, when I watch Panic Room and you see that virtual camera going through keyholes and up shafts, it turns me off. I mean, I know he's always ex- experimented with that, but there's something that's a little. Again, you, you like you were saying, he was testing the water, really. But yeah, mm. for me, that's when he was really pushing it and he was getting in the way of telling the story. Yeah, because if you look at the, the same kind of camera techniques happen in Fight Club. The two, these two things happen to say in these two movies. And it's almost like, he's thinking like, is this how I play with a camera? Is this how I do this? Turns out, <laughs> no, because in other, all the other movies since then, he barely does this virtual camera thing. He... he, he He's mastered the color palette, which is all his movies yes. have a very similar color palette that started directly even from Alien 3. Yes. You have to forget he also directed Alien 3, yes. even though he yeah. did not. I don't know. I don't know whether he, because this was, that was the first time he probably directed a feature film, I assume, was it? I think yes, it was. Yes, he was directing commercial, um, commercials and uh, music videos. So he directed Janie's Got a Gun by Aerosmith. 
Damn. Which is a, which is a great music video in itself. Yeah. It's about it's about a young girl that kills her father and goes on the run from the police, but it's very Fincher-esque. Mm. Very. So, yeah, maybe there's a thing that he's mastered the colour palette, which he's, he, in Seven, is that's his colour palette. He's mastered that. But he still doesn't know sure how to direct and frame things just right. He's doing things and testing out the waters, but he hasn't done it. He goes to Fight Club, where it's like, okay... I'm uh, it's uh, let, let's be a bit let's go a bit mad with it and it's a bit it's, it's a more creative movie out of the lot I think moves on to then to panic room and they say like ah, let's do a medium ish thing doesn't really work <laughs> so after that goes you know what well, fudge it I I really want to make Zodiac is something that he always wanted to do because he always loved the idea of like this boogeyman story and he's been yeah. hounding this down for a long time to do it and so this is his passion project this is kind of like his film this thing this is the most me I can possibly be um to the original thing that apparently the original script was about 200 pages worth wow and um, it's funny. I read a little. Uh, I read a little bit of feedback on this. Uh, uh, we're going to talk about the direction and the acting in a moment, actually. Yeah. But uh, in order to in order to not make it feel like it's going to be, because on average a script is about a page a minute, right? So two hundred minutes, supposedly. Yeah. Supposedly, although it varies. That's uh, a cliche. It's a cliche. There was a cliche, a filmmaking cliche. It's that. <laughs> it's that. But he actually told the he actually told the actors like just so it can um, not feel like a two hundred page script, the original cut of it, the original script, the reading script, shooting script anyway, uh, to tell everyone to speak a little bit faster. I was just about to say that as a joke, but that's is that the truth? Yes. Interesting. He's actually directed them to say like, speak a little bit faster. Although I think he was referencing when he was doing this, uh, um, similar movies of that kind of feel, like all the president's men and um, looking at things such and looking at those, like those fast talking press movies you see in the forties and fifties where we, we, you know, with Cary Grant just talking his mouth off. Yeah. Like a mile a minute. I'm getting married, Walter, and I'm also getting as far away from the newspaper business as I can get. Bud? <laughs> I am through. You get mad all you want to, Hilly, but you can't quit the newspaper business. Oh, well, why not? I know you, Hilly. I know what quitting would mean to you. Well, what would it mean? It would kill you. <laughs> you can't sell me that, Walter Byrne. Who says I can't? You're a newspaper man. That's why I'm quitting. I want to go someplace where I can be a woman. You mean be a traitor? Well, I mean, that's one of the things that I was taught when I was first taught about film acting. Talk fast, move slow. Really? Yes. So yeah. is that... Is that a useful piece of advice, or is that not? <laughs> I guess in, t- in terms of, I mean, I'm getting really into acting now. Mm. Um, in terms of moving, getting out of a chair, yes, you want to, you want to, the camera's got to catch that movement. And like you said, if you, you know, you, you've got to get through the text. So yes, in a way, that is that is a bona fide acting technique for film. But but yeah, just I never realised that about Fincher because you know, he's I've always seen him as quite methodical in the way he he, he makes film. Mm. Um, and obviously in terms of his camera moves, you know, yes. we're talking about someone getting out of a chair and walking out of a door. Mm. The camera, the camera is usually moving with the action. You know, it's, it's very well orchestrated. And um, mm. so I just had in my head, he would be far more, um, I don't want to say plodding, but he would take his time with the performance and the dialogue. It's not something I can imagine Fincher saying to his actors. Yeah, but I, I wouldn't be, but I wouldn't be surprised. Him, he, he, I mean, he, he probably was saying it, but I don't think he was saying it more like, come on, we've got to get through this quickly. I think, <laughs> I think he was saying like, look, we, time is money. <laughs> 
let's move on to pace, I think. This is probably yes. the most interesting thing about the movie for me. I think we might have maybe some alternate, some different approaches to this. So re-watching this, um, I find it interesting. The movie is long. The movie is about two hours and 40 minutes long. It's a long movie. There was an original mm. cut of three hours and eight minutes, which was trimmed down. Yeah. Um, and to me, even though it was a long movie and there were moments where things slowed down and calm, I found the pacing of the film in a good way. Like, this is fantastic because it never felt like two hours and 40 minutes. It, mm. it keeps going to the point where there's so much information thrown at you at the screen. Yes. That, and this is wonderful, by the way. It, almost, it makes you feel like, like, like you're getting with the case, almost like you are the investigative journalist learning all this info. Because if you stopped and went for a bathroom break and came back and missed 10 minutes, you've yeah. missed an entire, almost in some cases, a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some fantastic montages in the movie, you know, when you've got, uh, you know, uh, through the eyes of the journalists getting mm. the letters um, in terms of um, um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, uh, Robert Graysmith, you know, his investigating. This, this, like you just said, there's so much there, especially delivered through the montages, that it, it doesn't feel like a slow movie at all. I mean, mm. that surprised me a little bit that you just said it was, what did you say, two hours, 40 minutes? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, this, this this movie is actually a favourite of, of, of mine and my partner's. We watch this film all the time. Mm. Um, we'll always stick it on. She's a big fan of, of the whole true crime serial killer. Um, you know, yeah. She's always listening to these podcasts. But we, you know, one of us will always say, do you fancy watching Zodiac? Yes, yeah, stick Zodiac on. <laughs> we keep coming back to this film. And there's just something about it. Which just, I mean, like I say, it's fascinating because it's a true story. Mm. But I just love the way it's told. It's a, it's a character-driven film. Yeah. I mean, you think, think about, I mean, I'm, obviously I don't want to get into the acting just yet. But, I mean, think about how much of the actual Zodiac is in there. You know, there's maybe three or four scenes of mm. murders. The rest is these characters working working it out, working their way through this world. And the murders are only within the first hour or so. Yeah. Like the all the bits that you that you might sell a murder mystery on is like you're going to watch all the murders, you're going to watch all the gruesome gory deaths, right? You, yeah. It's it's part of its selling point. It's only in the first hour of this nearly 3-hour film. The other two hours have not barely anything to do with the killer himself. Yes, which is incredible. I mean, if you or I were to make that story and we say, oh, by the second hour, there's no more Zodiac, how do you, how do you write something like that? You know, without, you know, the house of cards just tumbling in. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. Prove this here is a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The SF police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles. Gentlemen, there. Paul, where's his shirt? Right there, boss. There's your rag the kids talked about. So you got in the front seat to tear up a piece of the shirt? Is this uh, on the record? What do you think? He confirms the Vallejo and Napa killings. Gets worse. Robert, you have a deadline? What does he mean it gets worse? Read the last part. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out the school bus some morning, just shoot out the front tire, and then pick off the kiddies as they come bouncing out. Jesus Christ, who's got school buses? Department of Transportation? School board. All right. 
I'm gonna need elimination prints from your staff. Does anyone here didn't touch this letter? But who actually cracked the code? A married couple who like puzzles. So what's that tell us about the Zodiac? There's no expert. Right, it's just a simple substitution code like the one that we used to do as Boy Scouts. A is one, B is two. We weren't all Boy Scouts, Robert. Well, it's not that hard. You just gotta know where to start, though. In the first cipher. You actually carry that around with you? Why? No reason. What's the most common double consonant in the English language? Consonant? The double L. Double L. And what's the one word that we know that he'll use in here at least once? Kill. Right, kill. So the Hardens start looking for double symbols, which they find here, here, and here, each with the same two symbols preceding them. So now they've got a repeating four-letter word ending with two symbols that they assume stand for L. And since I think the whole word is kill. And you got the K, you got your I, and you're on your way. But how do you go from A is one and B is two to figuring out this whole cut? Well, same way I did. You go to the library. In this book, the author presents a very simple substitution code in the preface. Eight of the 26 symbols that he suggests are found in this cipher. But there are non-letter symbols, because there's all these medieval ones. I thought they looked medieval, too. But then I found a code written in the Middle Ages. Guess what it's called? The Zodiac Alphabet. Jesus. What do you want out of us? What? What's your angle? This is good business for everyone but you. How do you mean business? It shows how much it adds more to the mythos. And what I find fascinating with this movie is that it really builds more on this boogeyman mythos thing and almost feeling as if it was like, you may have caught him and this whole idea with, um, with having Arthur Lee being the the possible killer turning out at the very end on on, on a goddamn text crawl at the very end of the movie yeah. saying like due to forensics turns out it's not him and you're like wow okay yeah. so we've yeah. been almost gaslit just like a little bit like uh jake gyllenhaal's <laughs> yeah. character is semi-gaslit throughout the movie thinking you're going yeah. nuts yeah Richard, uh, I can imagine, you know, your, your average moviegoer would hate something like that. Mm. You know, they they want they want the you know the big reveal, who done it? You know, and you you don't get that. You don't get that big final hurrah, and yeah. it does end on a dour note. But I but I think this movie isn't about the ending. The movie is about the journey you Absolutely. get there, and yeah. it's a fantastic roller coaster, fast pace like intense movie where yep. you're on three different roller coasters at once because you've got the investigative journalists, you've got their arcs, you've got the police's arcs, you've got the people, uh, all all the witnesses arcs. They're all going up and down and you're trying to almost catch up with it. You do end up wishing you had a board with red with red rope <laughs> yes, trying yeah. to connect everything and going like, is that it? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's one of the reasons why you know, me and my partner Neve go back to this film all the time because we're discovering more and more about it, you know. Mm. Um, and it does open up a lot of discussions between us. I mean, obviously she knows a lot more than I do about this subject, but yeah, it's, it's you, you get. I think you get something out of this film every time you watch it. It's worth revisiting. I mean, how did you feel? Well, you you have seen this film before yeah. today, yeah. Uh, so what did you think about it when you revisited it? I mean, on a base on a base level, did you enjoy it? I loved it. 
to the point that I was generally surprised that I didn't have a DVD of it because I thought like I always have a I have a massive DVD collection and Blu-ray collection. I sat there going like, oh, I must have this somewhere because when I if I really liked the movie or if I remember the movie, I'd buy it. It's not my collection. And it really confused me. So I want to go online and try to find online. Really difficult to find online unless you have to pay mm. for something like four four quid for a rental. And yeah. so I was like, then it must be, it must be on somewhere. It's a big popular movie by the sound of thing. It has to be. Couldn't. So I had to go, not not entirely legal means, I will say that frankly, <laughs> to um to find this film. And that shows like that's that that already kind of already set up the idea like this is this already surprises me that it's taken me so many loops to get there. By the time yeah. I got there, it was worth it because I barely remembered a thing. And that's really strange for a David Fincher film because you honestly feel like, ah, I would remember this more. And yeah. I think it's because, I think it's mostly because, like I was saying at the beginning, Zodiac is almost like the ultimate David Fincher blueprint. And so it's his first attempt at it. So me watching that... I don't think it clicked. Now that he's made so many other movies afterwards, almost following, almost to a T, this template, it made me realize going, so this is where it all started. This is where the Fincher style really got cemented. And it's been overshadowed by other films and TV shows that he's been on, uh, that, that he's worked on. And, you know, and that, and and it almost felt like a wonderful surprise going going through all this again. And going, like, so that's the thing here. This is the thing here. That's the thing there. Everything clicked yes. for me, and I honestly now feel like this is this is now my one of my favorite Fincher films because it, just rewatching it, going like, this is great. Why have I? I've, I felt genuinely in awe as to how this flew by me. We're gonna, I'm dying to talk about the acting, Johan. Can you tell? I'm chomping in the bit to talk about the acting. So, you yes. know what? Yeah, so you know what? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the direction and the acting in this film. Okay. Sure. So, I want you, I want you kind of maybe, maybe, because you, you've obviously you've seen enough David Fincher films by this point to kind yeah. of suss out if whether or not he has, at least in terms of his cast, does he have a particular, do you think he has a very particular way of directing actors? He seems to always get actors who know how to do their job mm. i mean i i wonder if i mean i don't want to compare him to someone like ridley scott mm. um you know who is famous for saying i employ actors so they can do their goddamn job yeah. <laughs> and act and i don't have to worry about that um but you know going back to the whole fincher technical thing and how technical his movies are and his camera shots and his camera moves um and his blocking I, I I don't know. I, I could just imagine that he perhaps leaves them to it, mm. um, you know, on the whole. I, I, it, it does feel like he has always, it, 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 whether it's him or a casting director, just knows exactly who needs to play these roles. Yes. Yeah. Every movie I've ever seen of his has never been, I've never sat down going, this is poorly miscast. 
Other than the only one moving is in David Fincher's Arsenal, which is very different, which is the curious case of Benjamin Button, where mm. this that is a full blown outlier in his entire canon of style because it's a very yes. different movie. It's fantasy. It's and, and even when he's trying to apply all his tones to it, it doesn't work because the movie's a bit more uplifting. Um, yeah, it's and- almost as if he is trying to sing for his supper. You know, that he's mm. he's doing that movie as a you know as a favor. Almost, because he cast people which I didn't think really worked in that movie, and that's why I always feel a bit off. Brad Pitt being that role didn't really work for me in that movie. But every other movie since then, and every and even the movies before then, he, he knows the people are suited for it. So yes. perhaps he says, because I've already got you as a perfect actor for this role, because you and you know your research, you know what you're doing. It means that he can focus on the technical side in terms of at least blocking movement and things yes. like that, rather than perhaps how the actors project their lines and how they perform because they say, they, look, I hired you for this role for a particular reason. And I think this is why I think his direction is quite interesting. He always seems to get, he just knows the right actor to fit. Yes. Well, I mean, if, if, if you've seen Zodiac, you know the character that Rob Downey Jr. is playing. Mm. And you know that he's got the life experience to play that character. <laughs> you don't need to direct it without spoiling what happens in the movie. Uh, you know that Robert Downey Jr. is going to be able to play uh, Paul Avery very well. Paul Avery as a character is absolutely phenomenal. Um, yes. And it's a shame, oddly enough, that he's obviously because it, because the movie isn't the movie's technically about him but also isn't about him which in that it's 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 not it's not really a role where i could say who is our main piece because it's really much an ensemble piece yes. where where even though Jake Gyllenhaal is the one we follow the most, mm-hmm. it's an ensemble piece, and every all the players around him are the ones influencing the movie, especially in the first half of the film before yeah. before um, before uh, Gray Smith goes literally on his own kind of thing. Um, having someone like Paul Avery, Paul Avery is absolutely he's actually a breath of fresh air in comparison to the rest of the characters. Yes, I mean, at first he's just presented as the comic relief mm. until you understand that there's something more tragic going on there. I mean, this goes back to my point about, you know, what happens to characters when they've, they've got no, you know, there's no finality, there's no conclusion. Welcome. Please put your stuff down. You're going down five rows and left. Looking for the Modesto B from March. I'm going to stand her in an attempt not to vomit. What am I looking for? Kathleen Johnson. Also, probably want to pull the crown from you know. Never mind. File. See that. Okay, look at this letter again. The part about Kathleen Jones. Tell me what facts he gives. A woman and her baby abducted. Mm-hmm. Fact. Uh, uh, the car on fire. Okay. Now, look at the article from the B. Um, See it yet? Everything in the letter already appeared in the article. And he's done it before. Officer Richard Radatinch shot sitting in his car. So he claimed that he shot someone in their car. Mm-hmm. A couple days after this article came out, the police already had somebody in custody. Zodiac didn't do it, but took credit for it anyway, because he's in it for the press. He even stole his symbol. What? No. He just stole his logo off a watch. I've been somebody who's killed 13 people. He claims he's killed 13 people, but which ones can we actually confirm? There's three in Vallejo, one in Berryessa, the cabbie, that's it. Bobby, you almost look disappointed. In terms of um, Paul Avery, who is this character that is almost feeding off 
the sensationalism of this serial killer mm. and it slowly starts to eat him alive to mm. the point where he is completely cut off well he's cut himself off from everyone you know and he's the final scene that you see him and he's he's just a shell because this this whole mythology this whole journey has just used him up yeah he feels almost he feels like he's actually at that point emotionally and physically done and yes. physically done as well because of the last shot of of Robert Downey Jr. He's in a bar somewhere, I think he is. But he's, he's on, on his he's on his boat, isn't he? He's living he's, on a houseboat yeah. on his own with, he, with Pong playing on the TV. Do you remember? Pong yeah. just old fashioned Pong going boom, 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 boom. And I love that because it's like he's not playing with anything. Nothing's moving. There's no computer on. He's just playing he's playing in the background because I assume he just likes the sound. Um but um <laughs> it's it's fascinating because by that point he literally says it's been four years, get over it. Because yeah. But realistically, you sat there going like, well, you're the reason why, you you know, you I've been waiting for you to come and revitalize me. But realistically, you haven't. You've actually yeah. just brought back an old wound and I am well, not see, ready for he, it. I mean, I mean, Robert Graysmith says, do you want to come and help me with this? He's writing a book, isn't he? He's yeah. like, do you, do you want to come and help me co-write this book? And I, I suppose as a part of, you know, um, Paul Avery that's just saying, I, I, I don't want this anymore. You know, this is what has ruined... Well, I've ruined myself, but this has been the catalyst for me ruining myself. And now you're trying to open up this old wound. I'd rather just, you know, be here, rot and die. So, um... What's new? I've been thinking. Yeah. Somebody should write a book. Somebody should write a fucking book, that's for sure. About what? About Zodiac. It's not new. I've been thinking that... If you put all the information together, maybe you could jog something loose. And then I was thinking that nobody knows the case better than you. Yeah, you true. know all the players, and you you have all the files. Lost them. You lost them? Or, or I tossed them. I, don't, I moved onto a boat. You know that we work in the daily business, right? As in today. What do you think we were doing back then? Do you know that more people die in the East Bay commute every three months than that idiot ever killed? He offed a few citizens, he wrote a few letters, and he faded into footnote. Not that I haven't been sitting here idly waiting for you to drop by and reinvigorate my sense of purpose. It's four years ago, let fucking go. You're wrong. It was important. Then what did you ever do about it? If it was so fucking important, what did you ever do? You hovered over my desk, you stole from wastebaskets. Am I being unkind? Oh, that's right, I forgot. You went to the library. I'm sorry I bothered you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Uh, I think in terms of, if you want to call something method acting, it's this performance from a Robert Downey Jr. Mm. Everything from the scene where they go for drinks and they have those big blue cocktails yeah. and the way he's, he's, he's got his head laying on the table and he's just looking at the drink to the final scene when he's just a shell, mm. you know, and he's living on his own and he's, you know, uh, just had so many, so much drugs and drink that he's just numb. He has to be using what has happened to him. Mm. before that i mean that is that is that is emotion memory that is that is sense memory at its finest so yeah absolutely i mean that's what i love about this era of robert Downey jr like you said it was a renaissance but i mean this is before all the marvel mm. you know the marvel growth you know or the marvel explosion i should say yeah and and to see him experimenting in the 2000s with different movies is is oh, i love i love that era of robert Downey jr yeah, he was experimenting with stuff as well. I remember the movie, another movie I saw beforehand, not a great movie, but he's best thing in it. I saw Gothica, I remember, Gothica. Oh, yeah. Which yeah. is the uh, kind of rubbish uh, Halle Berry film, but he's the he's bit I remember the most in. He, yeah, he is trying to just say, like, right, I don't know what I am, so I'm going to just put myself in most of these roles some of them honestly feel a little bit semi-biographical because he was also working. He also did a scan of darkly around this time as well. And kiss, kiss, bang, bang. bang. Yeah. Which is about the, 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 you know, the seedy underbelly of California, you know, and being out of work as an actor, which again, there you go. That's Robbie Downey Jr. Before that period. If it's, if, if it's, if if that's not more on the nose, I don't know what is. Exactly. Exactly. About his career. I've been thinking. Oh, God, say what's wrong. The letter to Melvin Belli was sent exactly one year after the Lake Herman Road murder, and the one to Sherry Jo Bates's father was sent exactly six months after her death. Mm. She was killed a day before Halloween, yeah. and you received a Halloween call. You know, these are all fascinating pieces of minutia, Robert. It's uh, it's a bit early in the day. Paul, <laughs> it's 11 o'clock, and we missed editorial. It's fascinating, basically, looking back, like you said, like this is Robert Downey Jr. for a period of time using his own experiences to try and see if he can reflect that into his career. Because I think, you know, he's try- he-, he had had a rough patch and he's maybe trying to get back into the scene, but he's already got at this moment in time. He's not been known as this. I, I can argue he's not he's not someone you would at the time put in front of a poster only put his name on it and sell a movie. Really? Yeah. So he'd had to say, right, if I'm going to be doing bit characters or side characters, I want them to be interesting. Yes. And he, he, he nails this here with Paul Avery. And use, use, he's probably said to himself, use what you know. Mm. You know, you know you, you've gone through these life experiences, use it. So I, I'd like to think that he snapped up that character. Just so like, this is, yeah, I'm yeah. going to grab yeah, this instantly. I'm having that, yeah. <laughs> he goes to Fincher, it's like, look, I know you tried for this one, but I want this. Please. I'm here. I'm here. Um, you were right, by the way. You didn't give his name. Who cracked it? A history teacher and his wife, Salinas. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is 
more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all to kill something gives me the most thrilling experience it is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl the best part of it is that when i die i will be reborn in paradise then all that i have killed will become my slaves i will not give you my name because you will try to slow down or stop my collecting of slaves for my afterlife we think our friends are tired but the fucker in the head i Heard even sent Vallejo a code key. Just help. What is that at the bottom? Leftovers. Maybe an anagram? How does one do that? I, I like I like puzzles. I do them a lot. How did you know he wasn't going to give his name? Dangerous animal. Dangerous animal. I want to discuss uh, Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. Yes. Yes. Um, is he the protagonist of the film? I guess on a on a surface level, yes. Mm. You know, you see him starting off, you know, low level. Uh, he's, he's an artist, isn't he? He's a cartoonist. Yeah. Um, starting off in the, the lower ranks, moving up a little bit cracking the case no he never cracks the case but you know trying to crack the case talking to police uh meeting his beau having children uh boy gets girl boy loses girl etc etc but it's only on a surface level like you say it's it's maybe it's not even an ensemble piece there's this this there's something else there it's more about the myth it's the mythology being bigger than Mm. anything else it's about the mythology of this zodiac killer um and I think I think we follow Jay Gyllenhaal's character, Robert Graysmith. We follow him um, as, as a kind of a thread throughout it. But mm. I wouldn't say he is the protagonist. Yeah, because he only becomes more essential near the last hour of the film. Every other time, he's almost he's purposely like a background character that just seems to I just like puzzles, and he's slowly seething in and helping it out. Uh, but realistically, is more I'd say one we get more interest in and more of an arc in and following the case is Mark Ruffalo. Uh, well, that, that, what I was about to say was I think J- Jake Gyllenhaal's character um, actually helps introduce us as the audience to these other characters. Mm. He's the conduit. Um, his performance is interesting because I'm not sure because apparent obviously the people who were alive at the time and still going around you know would talk talk to Fincher and talk to everything else and they were a lot of them were consultants um, in the movie and so on and Grace Smith was one because obviously Grace Smith wrote the book and everything else um, so it's. I'm wondering how, by that point, when you are trying to portray a role of an uh, as an actor, trying to portray a role of someone who's already still alive and is a real person, how much do you try and want to be as authentic to the real person, or how much do you feel like you have to do your own spin on things? Because is Jake Gyllenhaal's performance as Graysmith, I find quite interesting, but I'm not entirely sure what he's trying to pull across other than just being like, he's um, uh, like, well, obviously by the end of the movie, he just becomes purely blown obsessive to the point of mm. ruining nearly everything around him. Yeah. But before then he's just a little bit, it, 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 people call him, he's a boy scout basically. Mm. I mean, I mean, one argument would be to say that Jake Gyllenhaal is just doing his, his kooky acting. 
Mm. You know, uh, I mean, if you want to be completely disrespectful, disrespectful. That's fine. Um, that's fine. Because <laughs> I mean, it does it does kooks very well. Don't get me wrong; it does kooky very well. So it's time to go for a detour and let's return to auteur theory, but with a different question. Can actors be considered auteurs? Films can be marketed in a different way, such as from the producers behind a successful franchise or the latest film from an auteur filmmaker. But then, could you consider actors whose name might carry a similar auteural weight? British scholar Richard Dyer believes that the central point of the actor auteur is one that is in control of their screen image, brand and career pathway that creates a very distinct type of performance almost exclusively to them, which in itself can be a selling point. They are the ones that almost create a whole subgenre of films and produce a type of performance that's almost expected from them. So, consider actors who are known for very intense acting practices like Nicolas Cage or Al Pacino, or those with meticulous choices of roles, like Daniel Day-Lewis, or actors who have a very close working relationship with directors of whom they choose to work with, like Bill Murray with Wes Anderson. So when we were joking that Jake Gyllenhaal does kooky acting well, could that be his form of acting in an auteur kind of fashion? Stars can be hired exactly for having a particular method, they may be told to or may have chosen themselves to do these roles because it's the best fit. But does it mean it is the best for the story? Do you want to be accurate to the role or do you want to follow the brand of acting you've become accustomed to? Chris attempts to answer this question. Um, I mean, in answer to your question, I mean, coming from someone that's been to a Stanislavskian school, which mm -hmm. is all about understanding your character, their backstory, where they are, where they're going, what they want. If you're playing a real-life character, then, yes, you need to use everything that's there. You need to play that character, you know, as, 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 as truthfully to how they really were. Mm. So it's interesting, then, because I, I always wondered that, because... Obviously, in like biopics or anything of that ilk, or anything based on true events, there are always going to be real people, right? There are always real people involved, and some of them are still alive, which makes it even more interesting. But the idea is that does it does authenticity sometimes hold back in terms of performance to the narrative of a film if it is it is a narrative, whether it's realistic or not? There will be some dramatization. There will be things that are not authentic. So does that give you a little leeway of having maybe your own approach to things? Because you mentioned already, Jake Gyllenhaal has a quirky approach, which he does, you know, you've, you've, you've seen a little bit of that in things like Donnie Darko, you've seen that in Nightcrawler. Nightcrawler. So is he just applying this meld of quirky to this role or is that just based on authenticity? Uh, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't know much about the actual, the character, the real life character, mm. um, you know, I, I haven't seen any footage of this 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 character, um, but I think in answer to your question, if you were playing that character as authentic, authentic as authentically as possible, and you had a three hundred page script, you would need to dial some of that down. Yeah, you, would, you, you know, you would be getting in the way if you're going full blown method. Mm. So you, it's so. In other words, then you want to be as authentic as possible, but never to the point where you're almost completely lost through yeah. that, I guess. It's a Fincher film. You can't mess with the master. 
there. David just goes over and says, "Like, look, calm, calm, enough, calm enough. yourself, calm yourself." <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> you sure you don't want the car, Bill? It's your turn. You can just drop me off at my place and take the car. You should keep the car. Yeah. I'm not coming in tomorrow. What? What? What's up? I'm done. I put in for a transfer. <clears throat> Where? Looking at fraud. I can't be on call anymore. I want to see these kids grow up. Man, good for you, Bill. You'll be okay. Yeah, I'll be fine. I'm not leaving you holding the bag on anything, am I? No. Okay. Hey, you know what? Maybe I have a chance to try your Japanese food, the raw stuff. Well, I mean, for me, there's so many uh, breakdowns of relationships in this film. Mm. In terms of... Um, uh, what's this character named Ruffalo's Inspector Toshi that's his yeah, name isn't it Toshi, yeah. Toshi. Uh, he loses his partner mm. so his, his partner doesn't die you know not in a in a, in a seven-esque way his partner just... isn't killed partner just leaves his partner's had enough he's tired and he just leaves and all of a sudden you know Mark Ruffalo's character is, is on his own Mm. You know, his his best friend and his partner's left him. So it's another breakdown of a relationship. We see it with Jake Gyllenhaal's character, you know, breakdown of the marriage. But there's a lot of that in this film. What's interesting with Jake Gyllenhaal's character's breakdown of a marriage is that their first date is all related to Zodiac, um, <laughs> which, again, shows is almost almost like obsessive, maybe slightly autistic approach to this, mm, where yeah. he's just like, this is all in my head. I have to, I can't get rid of this, right? But it's interesting how an entire marriage comes out of that. And for years, a decade almost, of just yeah. her going like, look, I will do, I'll, I'm always here to help you with this. But eventually it gets to the point, like, it's been too long now. Give it a yeah. break. Or, it, or when, you know, Zodiac comes on the TV and, and he's like, he's kind of looking at her, making small talk. It's just, yes, go. Go and yeah, sit yeah, in yeah. front of the TV. I love that bit because as, as Jake Gyllenhaal like tilts his head over to look at the TV, she does that too to block him <laughs> yes, and go like, what yeah. are you doing again? Yeah, and then yeah. you can say, oh, fine, go to the TV. He's um, making small talk about peas. Oh, these peas are nice. What, yeah. what, what, did you do something different, dear? It's like, just, just go. I know you're fibbing. Just go over there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's clear as with with Mark Ruffalo's character, like his his, his partner was his 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 partner at the time. Obviously, he, it was a thing that was keeping him sort of grounded and not going as obsessive as he could be, uh, because you were able to share the load basically. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stress and that's there's a, all the stress levels it's like you can't, a man can't do it on his own and when he finally gets the thing to do on his own that you know there's even been the whole point of his character that eventually he was almost he was almost arrested for forging an entire letter yes for yeah. just so he can keep the case going or to keep yes. it in keep it in the public interest so yeah. that he has something to do well i mean if you, if you look at the the um, final third of the film where he's helping Robert Graysmith mm -hmm. and he's he's basically revealing 
uh, all this information. He's saying, I, I cannot advise you to talk to such and such. I mm. cannot advise you to go over here and look at this, you know, piece of evidence. Because mm. uh, I think he's, he's desperate again for this resolution. Mm. You know, even if, even if this nobody, this cartoonist from the paper mm. solves it, then it's been solved and it's put to bed and he can, you know, again, it's affecting his marriage as well. You know, when he, he gets, he gets uh, suspended, doesn't he? You know, yeah. that's affecting his relationship. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he's going against what he should do as a police officer and he's, he's trying to get this nobody to just get it done. Yeah. Get it and, over with. And in a weird way, his character does get a little resolution because at the very end, uh, near the very end, uh, there's a fantastic scene in a diner which I adore, that scene in the diner, where, where Jake Gyllenhaal literally goes in in the middle of the night, knocking at his door, saying, I have found the, <laughs> yeah. I have found the missing link. And obviously, obviously Mark Ruffalo is about to kill him because like, yes. you won't be able to build the night. You have been bugging me. You've actually put me in suspension. You have been kind of the reason why all this bad stuff happened. At the very end, despite the fact that this is all hearsay, he goes along with it, he goes for breakfast and tells him all the bits. And it's like, so... Almost saying, like, you know what? You were right in the first place. It was the original yeah, guy. Yeah. Well, there's there's a wonderful moment, isn't there, where where Jay Gyllenhaal is saying, there's this, there's this, there's that. And for everything he says, um, Mark Ruffalo just knocks it back. No, that was that was circumstantial. You know, yeah, we never found any proof for that. But then there's one moment where Jay Gyllenhaal says something, and there's this realization from Mark Ruffalo going, wow, that, that was him. Mm. We had him. It had, and you had him about a decade ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Look at this stuff side by side. Right. Okay. Um, Arthur Lee Allen and, and the Zodiac, their timelines. When was the first murder in Vallejo? Christmas 1968. Eight months before that, Allen is fired for molesting his students, and his family discovers that he's a pedophile. Now, when do the letters begin? July 69. After the murder of Darlene Farron. And they continue until you go to see him at work. Now, after that, do any of the letters contain swatches of Paul Stein's shirt? No, because he dumped him, because he got scared, because he knew that you were onto him. So when's the next letter from Zodiac? Not until January of 1974. He is silent for three years. Then in 74, he feels comfortable again, because everybody's moved off Alan as a suspect. And what do we get? Three new letters from Zodiac in January, May, and July in 74. But then the letters stop. What happens to Alan? He's arrested. January 1975, they send him to a Tascadero. We don't get another letter from Zodiac the entire time he's there. When is he released? August 77. Alan gets out, he types you an apology, and then what? We get our first new Zodiac letter in four years. Okay. Zodiac had to have known Darlene Farron, right? Yes, because of the phone calls on the night of her murder. Because of the Vallejo file. We know that Darlene knew a man named Lee? Yes. So all coincidence aside, Robert, how can you be sure that Lee Allen is a Lee from this file? Now, Vallejo is a small town, but it's not that small. How do you put the two of them together? This is a case that's covered both Northern and Southern California, with victims and suspects spread over hundreds of miles. Would you agree? Yes. Darlene Farron worked at the Vallejo House of Pancakes on the corner of Tennessee and Carroll. Arthur Lee Allen? Lived in his mother's basement on Fresno Street. Door to door. That is less than 50 yards. Is that true? I've walked it. 
Jesus Christ. Um, there's one thing I do want to say about Mark Ruffalo. Mm. Um, that that decade, and this might sound out a little bit silly to some of your listeners, that decade is when I started to realise who Mark Ruffalo was as sure. an actor. Okay. And I, I was like, oh, oh, that's the guy from Eternal Sunshine. That's, mm. that's that actor. Oh, wow. You know, I started to make that link. I mean, I'm sorry to mention Marvel again, but, you know, before he became the Hulk. Yeah. You know, he was doing all this fantastic work. And I, I love that period. I mean, I'm not sure what year collateral is. It's, it's collateral in the in the noughties. Michael yeah, Manfield. Yeah, noughties as well. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he plays another great cop, another great cop role. But yeah, I mean, uh, <clears throat> look at, you know, Rob Downey Jr. and, 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 and Mark Ruffalo in that, that period. Some mm. fantastic roles, some fantastic acting. They were trying things out. They were being meaty. They were going like, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to do these things that really stand out as a character. And yeah, you're right. I'd actually argue that this is the best I've seen Mark Ruffalo in in a while that isn't very sort of either superhero-y or very generic. It's or romantic. Or romantic. Schlock romantic. He's been, he's been in a lot of those. He's been, yes. He was in a lot of those before this time. And actually, speaking of just to throw in the little Marvel stint, it's kind of interesting that for the three main actors in this movie have all now starred in Marvel movies. Um, <laughs> I think it basically is what, if, if you were a great actor in the 2000s, at some point you will be in a Marvel movie. We just need John Lynch now. The oh, guy that plays man, Arthur Lee Allen. <laughs> I have no idea what he, he's he, doing. He, he, he can play. Uh, he can play. He'd be in the Fantastic Four. He can be uh, the Thing. Oh, I'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, wonderful I stuff. I don't know if you want. Do you want to talk about just John Lynch very briefly? Because yeah. his 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 oh his performance in there. I mean, you know, we we've got some great. Uh, uh, serial killer, psychotic performances, you know, in movie history. Mm. Um, but he's the antithesis of the the Hannibal Lecter performance. Mm. You know, the the final interview they have with him when they um, when they drag him out of work yeah. and they bring him into the canteen, and he just talk. He talks like uh, you know a, a normal guy. You know, mm. he's just answering questions, and he's you know he's sat there with his legs crossed and he's fiddling with his watch and but it's just occasionally it'll drop a little little clangor mm. a little you know in answer to the question which will make the police sit up and go hang on a minute you know when he mentions the 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 um the deadliest game what, what was yeah um he, basically hunting hunting mankind yeah. um but it's, it's such a great performance because i say it's, it comes across just so natural and so normal in mm. inverted commas but then occasionally it'll just drop something and it's, you notice there's moments in that performance where everything's just surprisingly subtle. But you're sitting there going, huh, hmm, he's doing something with his watch. Huh, he's doing something with his foot. Ah, he's he's, he's pausing yeah. just a little bit. It's a masterclass on how to sort of be, to have everything out on the table, but no one to almost realize it, except Marf Ruffalo's character say, like, this is clearly something up with him. But his performance is outstanding in that scene. Yeah. When, when he says, um, I look forward to the day when, police officers aren't called pigs mm. and it just comes out with it. It just says it. And they all go, okay. <laughs> There's so many clues dropped in that entire thing almost because it's like, wait a minute. If it's almost as if it's like, obviously at the end of the day, it's in the like, well, actually we didn't tell you half of this stuff. So how are you dropping this in if we're not telling you that, you know, and blah, yeah. blah, blah. Is it opinion or did you actually write that down? And it's yeah, it, But he never gives himself away, you know. He never does. anything that they could slap the cuffs off. The informant notified us that you made certain statements 11 months mm -hmm. prior to the first Zodiac murder. 
If they're true, they're quite incriminating. Do you recall having any such conversation? No. Have you ever read or heard anything about the Zodiac? When it was first in the paper, but I didn't follow it after those first reports. Why not? Too morbid. I told all this to the other officer. Which other officer? From Vallejo. Do you remember his name? No, but it was right after the murder at the lake. And what did you tell this officer? I told him that I'd gone to Salt Point that weekend to skin dive, that I was alone, but I met a couple there. I have their names at home if you want them. That would be great, Arthur. Lee. What? Lee. Nobody calls me Arthur. Also, that day when I came home, my neighbor saw me. It was around four, but I forgot to tell the other officer that. Neighbor's name? Bill White. He died a week or so afterwards. Heart attack, so I didn't think to call to follow up. The knives I had in my car with the blood on them, that blood came from a chicken that I killed for dinner. What? I had knives in my car that weekend. Maybe Bill saw them and called the other officer on me. Well, we'll be checking in on that. Uh, let me ask you something else. Were you ever in Southern California at any time in 1966? Is this about the Riverside killing? Yes. Well, I guess I was there around that time. I used to go down there a lot. I liked the auto races. Foreman says that you're ambidextrous? No, that's untrue. You can't write with both hands. My teachers tried to make me when I was a kid, but I couldn't. I'm left-handed. He also said that you made statements about killing school children. That is... That is horrible. That is that's a horrible thing to say. So you aren't angry about being fired from Valley Springs for touching your students? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. This feels very much like some of the interview scenes he would later master in Mindhunter. Like, there's some, like talking to some of the serial killers in Mindhunter, they almost follow the, the way it's been picked out and performed and maybe directed by Fincher. It's like going, this is how you perform that sense of being like your hands on, you know, being that person who gives all the clues but doesn't. That kind of, that interrogation approach was almost by that point in Mindhunter, I'm sitting there going like, this is, this is the best way to ever inter do an interrogation scene of any kind. The way it's edited, the way it's shot, the way the, the actors are performing, it's wonderful. And here, again, like I stated from the beginning, it's the blueprint, and it's almost a perfect blueprint. You could you could just show that scene and saying this is Fincher at his most, most, most point of how he does these movies from this point onwards. I think it's a confidence thing. I think he's starting, you said right at the beginning of this interview, you know, he's starting to find his feet, but I think it's a, it's a confidence thing. It's, it's mm. confidence in his filmmaking and mm. how he wants to tell that story, mm. you know, is I can do it. You know, I'm passionate about this uh, subject matter and I can, I can tell it like this. It doesn't need to be a all guns blazing, you know, uh, we've got to hunt this serial killer and he's going to be here at, at 10:35, and you know, get the get the the sharpshooters, you know, on, on yeah. top of, on top of the buildings. It's 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 not that kind of film. Mm. 
It's not that at all. And, and I think that's I think that's a confidence thing. It's got to be. It's, it's a confidence thing, you know, of being able to tell a story in that way. So by that point, are we saying at the end of it, really, that David Fincher at this point in time is now confident in his ability as a director, as a filmmaker, and saying that this is again almost from the very beginning, from his, from the way he selected the shots, performance, everything else, he sat there going and realizing this is all him. This is the most him. This is him out on the table and hoping that everyone likes it. We haven't talked about the actual, some of the killings. Yes, let's talk about the murders. So um, there's one murder which, uh, so, I mean, I don't, I can't remember the names of the the people that were killed, so excuse Mm me. Um, But there's there's one scene, it's in the park, when there's there's the couple on the uh, picnic rug. Mm Mm-hmm. And they just have a picnic, and you know the the, the girl notices uh, there's someone standing by the tree. Yes, and the guy's like, "Oh, it's fine. He's probably just you know just hanging around." And then she's like, "Oh no, he's coming over." And it's all very very polite and very relaxed. Tie your hands, tie your hands. Don't look at me. Get mm. you know, lie face down. And then when the, the actual horrific moment comes, basically he, he stabs. The guy in the back. Yeah, it's not. It's not glorified or anything like that. I think it's. It's only one shot. It stays on one shot mm. of the guy lying down, and just a bit of him. Excuse the expression. Being penetrated. Yep. from behind, and he's, he's just stab, 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 stab. And there's something about that which I find, by definition of the word, horrific. Mm. You know, it's not jazzed up or anything like that. It's. Um, I don't even think there's there's, there's any music. No, it's most, I remember yeah. this, there's only just screams and shouting. Yeah. And the shots are, they don't see, you don't see a lot of the stabbing. There's only one point where you see yeah. sort of a few shots of the woman being stabbed in the stomach, but it's like yeah. for a second. Yeah. Everything else is looking at the expression and the dying look in their eyes as the blood yeah. f- flows and rushes out. But it's out. painful, you know, it's not, it's not a, you know, stab or when this person oh, and dies. It's it's lingering, you know, mm. it's this, you can almost imagine it's this small knife. Yeah. I don't know if I'm just imagining that. It's just like, it just you know, it's it's something which is quite drawn out and brutal, and and uh, you know the way the way Fincher can just examine a moment like that and not make it sensational. And it's quite interesting, actually, that all the other murders are sort of similarish in a way where they just kind of have a long build up and almost like. Well, the, with the picnic scene is more is more is more intentional. Where it's like I said, it's, it's almost polite and it's very personally. I find that quite confusing. Comes in like, hmm, we're all going along with this, are we? With no, there's no in most movies, most horror movies, at least in horror films, at least or slasher films, this would be running. They'll be screaming. They'll be you know, there'll be the big slasher killer coming in with a machete. This is just like tie hands, please do this, please, which is more. Yeah which is a different kind of terror because you're now going along the ideas, okay, there's a person with authority here. He has a gun. It's like, okay, we're going to do this. Okay, we're going to follow along and see what happens. And they're they following along. They have a along. conversation, don't they? They have a conversation. The guy goes, leave us out here. We're going we're gonna to freeze to death. Somebody else is here. It is a public park. I think he's watching us. Well, we're very good looking. Where'd he go? Right behind that tree. All right, so he's taking a leak. He's coming towards us. 
Oh my god, he has a gun. Don't move! I want your money and your car keys. Okay. We're not gonna do anything, okay? We're gonna cooperate. Just tell me what you want us to do. You know, I might be able to help you. Even more than you might think. He's a sociology major. Pre-law. Don't get up. I want her to tie you up. Okay. Don't get any ideas. I'm not. I killed a guard escaping from prison in Montana. I'm not doing anything, okay? I'm not afraid to kill again. Then when the hurdy gurdy man came singing songs. And then all the other murders, there's only, there's a few scenes of the murders I find quite interesting. And the one I remember the most, even though it's not technically a murder, is the one where we got, I think it's Ka uh, Kathleen, who, Kathleen and her baby, where she gets um, that scene where, you know, the car breaks down and then has to be picked up by the person. Um, I found that, I found that scene incredibly tense and I actually was getting, I actually was starting to get a bit nervous because when they do agree to get into the car with him and one of the first, well, I think one of the first, um, we know who it is at this point. We know because, well, we don't see their face. It's great, brilliant. Every time, even in that scene where in the park, he's all, he's all either dressed in black or in silhouette. So it's wonderfully shot. So we never get a full confirmation on who the Zodiac Killer is because we don't know. We still don't know, but it's brilliant because by the time she gets into the car, there's a scene bit where, where he almost feels a bit surprised because I didn't know you had a baby. And she goes and says, um, she goes, oh, is that be okay? And he says, the more the merrier, which is downright terrifying when you know yes. who it is. Yeah, and then just the aftermath, you know, of uh, throwing the baby out of the, out the window. Are you okay? Yeah. Yeah, we're fine. Must have been worse than I thought. I can give you a lift to a service station. Okay. see that action it cuts to black and we cut later uh where just a trucker and a car just sees this woman screaming in terror and it's like jesus <laughs> yeah. christ yeah because he, he, he can't go he, he can't go over and touch her she's she's hysterical yeah it's a wonderful scene for me uh, it's just it's for me it's the most tense scene in the movie in terms of because we, we know where it's building up to some of the other murders such as the uh the cab driver and the teenage couple yes. at the beginning those are surprisingly quick and they're yes. done purposefully like it's like you know like oh there's someone here can i help you bam Shh, 
two shots to the head. Imagine some someone standing in the uh, the video shop. I'm, I'm, I'm showing my age now. But <laughs> standing in the video shop. Oh, there's a serial killer movie. Oh, look at this one. You know. Oh, it's good. It's about the Zodiac killer, and there's only four 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 murders in there. Something like that. And four like murders. you said, all very all very short. All you very know. short in the first hour, and they don't last anything longer than a couple of minutes each. this podcast with uh, something called the elevator pitch it's very very simple okay if you're going to introduce this movie to someone who's never seen it before in a couple of sentences how would you do it if you want to watch a movie which shows you how to live as a human being and what not to do as a human being and how to find closure and how to not find closure watch this movie it's not your balls to the wall slasher serial killer horror film there's more going on there it's about life it's about life like you said it's 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 you know all those decades it's it's entire lifetime it's 25 goddamn years in three hours it's so impressive yeah. You know, it's so impressive that in three hours we've gone through literally three different decades. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful. It was an absolute treat, this film. Honest to Christ. And I have to thank you for that. Get it, get it on Blu-ray. Get on Blu-ray. And that was our review of David Fincher's Zodiac a master's blueprint, and one that deserves a second stab at. It was great to have Chris Chambers on to sort of guide me through some of the better character pieces and to analyze the actor performance. If you want to find out more about this subject, I would highly recommend looking at Chris's YouTube channel, Organic Acting. Link can be found in the description below. So what do you think? What other underrated films from well-known directors would you want me to review on the podcast? Feel free to write your suggestions on our social media and maybe, just maybe, we can reopen another cold case. And with that, this film essay is closed. And we'll return soon for another Not-So-Trash review. See you all next time, cinephiles. to this podcast episode and hope you enjoyed it if you did please share it around with movie lovers you know maybe add a star rating or write a good review all of this helps with the algorithm and provides us with more opportunities to reach the ears to a whole new bunch of bad film fanatics want to find out more about us then head over to our socials where we 
provide sneak peeks and up-to-date news on everything nostalgic and trashy. You can find our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages in the description. So please, follow us. See you next time, cinephiles.